This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Thank you for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. And this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast simply because we always enjoy reading and talking about comics by Mike Grell. The number of issues covered in each episode varies based on story arcs. So today we'll talk about The Warlord number 32, which features the introduction of a new character, and Green Arrow, numbers 21 through 24, which features a four-issue adventure in Japan with Shadow. We will also continue our coverage of The Legion of Superheroes by Mike Grell with issues 204 and 205. Our special guests joining us for this segment are Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary and Philip Schweier, who is a writer for the website Comic Book Ben. Because of the long Green Arrow story arc we're covering this time, we won't be reviewing a John Sable issue in this episode. But don't worry, we'll get back to those issues very soon. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrell.com. That's his official site. He posts upcoming convention appearances there, along with photos and news updates. If you've been keeping up with his site, then you've already heard the fantastic news about his return to Green Arrow at DC Comics. Mike will be drawing 12 variant covers for future issues of the current Green Arrow series. And we're very happy that Mike shared the information with us before the official announcement so that we could help promote the story. Thank you so much for including us, Mike. As Mike Grell says on his website, Green Arrow has always been his favorite comic character, and he felt privileged to guide the character through his first self-titled regular series. And this is a special year for him to return to the series, because it's the 30th anniversary of the publication of Green Arrow The Longbow Hunters. Mike also mentions on his website that he thinks it would be great to get a hardcover edition of the Longbow Hunters for the 30th anniversary. If you agree, like we do, please let DC Comics know that's something you would like to see this year. Convention season is here, and if you ever have an opportunity to see Mike Grell at a convention, please go. He is always friendly and truly loves talking with his fans. He has a beautiful selection of prints and does original commissions at reasonable prices. Mike has several appearances scheduled over the next few months including Pensacola, Florida in late February, Lexington, Kentucky, and Huntsville, Alabama in March, East Coast Comic Con in New Jersey in April, and Cheyenne, Wyoming in May. Plus, this summer, Mike will be a special guest at San Diego Comic Con. That will be a great place to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Longbow Hunters, and he plans to discuss new developments that will be announced at that show. As always, pre-orders for con sketches can be placed through Scott Kress at CatskillComics.com. And if you can't make it to a convention, but would like to get an original drawing, then Scott Crest can help you with that too. Just make your request at catskillcomics.com. I really appreciate how he posts scans of recent commissions on the website, and I was really excited to see the new sketches by Mike Grell. Batgirl, Green Arrow, and Hawkman were my favorite of the recent posts. We always enjoy sharing listener feedback, so feel free to join in the conversations or to write to us anytime. 
We'd love to hear your opinions about any of Mike Grell's titles over the course of his career. I appreciate knowing what others think of Mike Grell's stories and art. I always enjoy finding out about favorite characters or hearing stories about what it was like to meet Mike Grell at a con. So any comments you send are always appreciated. We'll provide our email address and other ways to reach us at the end of the episode. Warlord Worlds is part of the Rad Adventures podcast network. If you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our other podcasts that are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales, featuring Cadillacs and Dinosaurs by writer and artist Mark Schultz. And Trekker Talk is a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the sci-fi comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. Mike Grell, Mark Schultz, and Ron Randall are our favorite comic creators. Their stories are always filled with adventure and interesting characters, and their art is excellent. We hope you'll try out our other shows, and we'll be sure to include links to those podcasts in the show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Tim from Cord Industries, the Blue Beetle blog. I'm here to tell you about an exciting new addition to the Silver and Gold family of podcasts. The show is Beatlemania, and it focuses on what is arguably one of the greatest superheroes in all of comics history, Blue Beetle. From the adventures of Dan Garrett the Cop in the 1930s to Dan Garrett the Archaeologist in the 1960s. From everyone's favorite Ted Cord to the more recent adventures of Jaime Reyes, we'll be covering the entire legacy of the Blue Beetle. And I won't be doing it alone. Joining me for this epic journey through the lives of the Blue Beetle will be Jay from the Silver and Gold Podcast. Together, we'll be discussing, reviewing, and celebrating the awesomeness of all of the Beatles. Beatlemania, coming soon to SNGPod.com and CordIndustries.blogspot.com. The Warlord, number 32, April 1980, Land of the Titans. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell, inker Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Our story picks up where it left off last time. Travis Morgan has just washed up on shore after being dropped far out to sea by a giant bird. As his head clears, he looks up to see two giant titans dressed like Roman soldiers towering above him. The two titans take him in hand as though they are going to rip him in two. Springing into action, Morgan flips head over heels and kicks one of the titans in the eyes. He screams in pain and drops Morgan. Morgan pulls his sword from its sheath and hurls it toward the second titan where it rips through his neck. But the first titan has recovered and fires a stun gun at Morgan and he falls to the ground unconscious. The titan carries Morgan to a metal disc and drops him onto it. The titan then steps onto the metal disc and it elevates into the sky and flies over a jungle to a city in the distance. Another blast from the stun gun wakes Morgan from his slumber, and he finds himself in front of a giant titan who is sitting on a throne. She introduces herself as Queen Amaranth. Morgan tries to defend his actions, saying that he reacted only in self-defense, but Queen Amaranth tells him that is irrelevant. There were only six titans remaining, the last of their race, and Morgan has killed one of them. He is sentenced to death. He is knocked unconscious once again and thrown into the dungeon until the queen decides how to kill him. Morgan wakes to find a beautiful raven-haired woman is caring for him. Her name is Shakira, and she and her people are slaves to the Titans. There are many more of them, but many of her people serve the Titans as if they are gods. While Shakira feels she is well cared for by the Titans, 
She does not want to be a slave, and Morgan is the first person she's met who she thinks could help her escape. Taking out one of the human guards, Morgan and Shakira make their way along the stone corridors across a walkway overlooking the Titan's armory. But one of the Titans sees them and climbs up onto the walkway. Morgan runs toward him and leaps, hitting him in the chest with full force. The Titan stumbles backward and falls over the ledge of the walkway and plummets into a pool of molten metal below that is being used to forge weapons. Morgan then grabs an axe and throws it toward another approaching Titan who is aiming his stun gun at Morgan. The axe and the stun gun both strike their targets. The Titan is killed by the axe while Morgan collapses unconscious from the stun gun. Morgan again wakes in front of Queen Amaranth's throne. He has killed half of her race in a single day. The queen turns to Shakira, calling her a fool. She has always been the queen's favorite servant, but her life is now forfeit. The two are taken to the arena and thrown inside. For sport, to make the proceedings more entertaining, Morgan is given a sword and Shakira is given a long spear. A gate opens at one end of the arena and a giant creature that looks like a cross between a woolly mammoth and a horned rhinoceros begins to race toward them. Morgan shoves Shakira out of the way as the beast hits him, throwing him against the arena wall. The creature begins to race toward Morgan for a final blow, but Shakira darts across the arena in front of it, attracting its attention. The creature turns and begins to charge at her, but Shakira stands unmoving until the last moment when she suddenly uses the spear like a pole vault, leaping out of the way of the beast. The creature plows head first into the wall. Shakira has maneuvered it into the perfect position below the queen, who is standing on the wall of the arena. The wall begins to crumble, and the queen falls into the arena, impelling herself on the horn of the giant beast. Shakira then turns and throws her spear toward one of the two remaining titans, and the spear rips through his chest. The recovered Travis Morgan follows her lead, killing the last remaining titan with his sword. As Morgan and Shakira step onto one of the floating metal discs to make their escape, Shakira turns to him and says, I'm a free creature. I come and go as I please and give my loyalty to whom I choose. It is in my nature to be independent. Before Morgan's eyes, Shakira transforms from a beautiful raven-haired woman into a small black cat as the metal disc rises into the sky. The cover features a dramatic scene of Morgan and Shakira in a battle with one of the Titans. The artwork inside is terrific as usual. Morgan's fight with the Titans at the beginning is well choreographed, and I really like the page with the floating metal disc flying over the city in the jungle. The proportions of the Titans and the humans are handled well. The Titans are large enough to be menacing and imposing, but not so large that it seems unrealistic for Morgan and Shakira to defeat them. It's very well done. Shakira is immediately likable, and another example of a strong and independent woman who can definitely take care of herself. It is all thanks to Shakira that she and Morgan escape the Titans arena. I really appreciate Mike Grell giving us a variety of these strong female characters in his books. The transformation of Shakira into a cat at the end of the issue adds a nice touch of mystery to her character, and it's no wonder she became a fan favorite. I know that I definitely like her personality and the way the character is designed. When we interviewed Mike Grell last year, he mentioned that if he gets to tell a warlord story to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the series in a few years, then he plans to finally tell fans whether Shakira is a woman who turns into a cat or a cat who turns into a woman. I definitely hope he gets the opportunity to tell us that story. When you talk about comics, does it sound something like this? Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. 
And you, uh, you can't put the number 98 with the 300s. Lori Lamaris hasn't even been introduced. Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robinson, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. On the Coffee and Comics podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. Green Arrow, Blood of the Dragon, is a four-part story published in Green Arrow issues number 21 through 24. The four issues were released every two weeks, so the story was published over two months instead of the typical four months. Green Arrow, number 21, August 1989. Blood of the Dragon, Part 1, Uchi Okoshi, which means Raise the Bow in Japanese Archery. Writer Mike Grell. Pencils Dan Jurgens. Inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters John Costanza. Colors Julia Laquament. Editor Mike Gold. The story opens on a beautiful sunny day in Washington, D.C., before quickly moving into a dark, smoke filled room as a group of men are discussing secret plans. They have chosen a primary assassin, but they will also maneuver another into the game to kill the assassin after the mission. Next, we're in Japan at a tranquil seaside home surrounded by gardens. Shadow sits in the garden holding a baby. She takes the baby inside and puts it in a crib, leaving an elderly couple to watch over it. Shadow takes her bow and goes back out to the garden to practice her archery. But what Shadow doesn't know is that armed men have landed on shore and are making their way toward the house. A moment later, Shadow hears gunfire and turns to race toward the house. She finds herself surrounded by numerous masked figures. She fights admirably, defeating each in turn, until she faces a man holding a sword who is ready to cut her baby in half. Shadow stops her attack and is beaten and knocked unconscious by the remaining men surrounding her. Shadow wakes in a dark cell. It is the Yakuza who have taken her captive, but it is an American smoking a cigar who talks to her. He wants her to kill a man, and they will hold her baby hostage to ensure she does as instructed. In Seattle, at Sherwood Florist, Oliver is depressed to be facing yet another birthday. He laments his friend Hal's youth, and tells Dinah he thinks Hal must have a portrait in his attic, just like Dorian Gray. Oliver answers a knock at the door and is given a message. He turns to Dinah and tells her he has to go to Japan. Arriving at the house in Japan, Oliver finds Shadow kneeling at a small shrine. Her face is heavily bruised, and Oliver immediately wants to know what happened. She tells him about the members of the Yakuza who kidnapped her child, and the cigar-smoking American who told her she must kill a man, and then she must take her own life, or they will kill her son. Oliver is shocked to hear of the kidnapping in the mission, and he is equally shocked to learn that Shadow has a son who he knew nothing of. Oliver wants to know who she is supposed to kill, but she won't tell him, knowing that he will try to stop her. If he does, she will also have to kill him. She has four days to find her son, or she will have to complete the mission. Since she doesn't want him to help her, Oliver asks why she sent a message to him. But as the issue ends, she turns and tells him that she did not send any message. 
The cover features an image of a masked shadow holding her baby in one hand and a sword in the other. In the background, we see an image of a dragon, which is used in the surprint for all four issues. This story gets off to an exciting start with this issue. I really like the cloak and dagger feel of the story with all of the dark, smoke-filled rooms. The story makes it clear just how formidable and resourceful Shadow is. The Yakuza have no hope of controlling her other than by using her child as a hostage. Oliver's scenes with Dinah on his birthday are the only brief moments of humor in the issue, and they are quickly interrupted by the knock at the door. And I must say that I really like that Oliver immediately knew he had to go to Japan to help. The revelation at the end of the issue that it was not Shadow who sent the message is a nice twist and a terrific way to end the issue. Green Arrow number 22, August 1989. Blood of the Dragon, part 2. Hikiwake, which means draw the bow in Japanese archery. Writer Mike Grell. Pencils Dan Jurgens. Inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters John Costanza. Colors Julia Lacomet. Editor Mike Gold. Picking up the story, Oliver is surprised to hear that Shadow didn't send the note, and she tells him that indicates how much danger they are in, because someone is manipulating both of them. She tells him to go home to Dinah, but he wants to help her find her son, because he knows he would do anything to protect his own son if he had one. The cigar-smoking American is still in Japan, meeting with members of the Yakuza, and we learn that he considers himself safe from those around him. He has information that implicates several others in a certain assassination in Dallas two decades earlier, and he is confident no one will come after him while he has that information. Meanwhile, Shadow is meditating and thinking back to figure out where she was taken when her son was kidnapped. She remembers stone walls like a fortress. She saw snow. She heard birds. Not seagulls, but eagles. There were bells from a monastery nearby. She suddenly knows where it must be. It takes them a whole day of travel, but she and Oliver make their way high into the mountains to a stone fortress on a snow-capped mountain with armed guards on patrol. The two archers scale the rocky cliff and maneuver into position to take out the guards, letting arrows fly in the falling snow. They make their way further into the fortress, leaving a trail of bloody bodies. Shadow recognizes one of the men who kidnapped her son and lunges at him with a knife, but Green Arrow shouts at her, telling her they need to keep someone alive to answer questions, since they haven't found this child. Shadow agrees he is right, but the man lunges for the knife and stabs himself in the chest as he tells Shadow, You lose. The cover features an image of both Green Arrow and Shadow standing side by side with her bows aimed into the distance. Snow-covered mountains fill the background, and the same dragon image is used in the surprint. While the art was fine in the first issue, it really takes a step up in this issue with great page layouts, dynamic action scenes, and excellent use of colors. I love the image across pages 2 and 3. It's a beautiful image of the city with the sun setting and turning everything red, gorgeous, and very symbolic for the story. The double-page title page features a stunning image of green arrow and shadow with a dragon in the background. The image of shadow meditating at the edge of a cliff with a full moon in the background is another favorite, I love the stars, the details of the rocks, and the shadowed greenery in the background. The double-page spread of Green Arrow and Shadow on the snow-covered mountain looking at the fortress in the distance is spectacular. Maybe my favorite image in the whole issue, which is saying a lot because there are so many great images in the issue. The action sequence in the fortress is fast-paced and the art is dynamic, with many great angles and perspectives. It's very cinematic. Green Arrow, number 23, September 1989. Blood of the Dragon, Part 3. Kai, which means completing the draw, 
the moment of perfect tension in Japanese archery. Writer Mike Grell, pencils Dan Jurgens, inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin, colors Julia Lacquamut, letters John Costanza, assistant editor Katie Main, editor Mike Gold. Green Arrow and Shadow make their way down from the mountaintop, stopping at a pool to clean their wounds. Shadow is now convinced the Yakuza are holding her son at their most secure location, a place no one would dare to enter, their headquarters. At that moment, in that very building, the cigar-smoking American is in yet another meeting where he is being questioned by Yakuza leaders about his decision to use Shadow for this assassination. The group of men pass photos among themselves showing the bloody bodies found at the mountaintop fortress. However, the American says this just reassures him that he made the right choice. Oliver and Shadow arrive in the heart of a brightly lit city, and Shadow gives him an overview. Geisha houses, Japanese gardens, gambling halls, electronics manufacturers, defense contractors, all legitimate businesses, and at the heart of it all is the Yakuza headquarters. They are involved in all businesses, both legal and illegal. They draw no line between the two. She knows her son will be in the central headquarters. They must find him. The only other option is for her to complete the mission, which means death for an innocent man, seppuku for herself, and a lifetime of service to the Yakuza for her son. The two change clothes and the green arrow and shadow slowly make their way through the facility, but progress is not easy or quiet as they battle groups of Yakuza guards at every turn. Swords swing and arrows fly, and at times the green arrows and shadows only hope is to pick up the occasional gun from a downed Yakuza and return fire. Any hope of a surprise attack is long gone, but Oliver and Shadow do make it to the penthouse, where more armed guards await them. However, as they make their way through the guards, one member of the Yakuza escapes with a child, using a helicopter on the roof. As the helicopter flies away, Shadow tells Oliver the only choice now is for her to complete the mission. Oliver turns to demand to know who she is supposed to assassinate, but Shadow has already vanished. In another smoke-filled room, Yakuza leaders confront the cigar-smoking American, but he tells them it will all be over in 12 hours as he tosses down a newspaper featuring photos of the U.S. president, the Russian president, the Japanese prime minister, and the Japanese emperor, who will all be attending an international arms reduction summit in Japan the next day. The cover features an image of Green Arrow firing a machine gun, and while that may seem out of character, it is certainly appropriate for the story inside. Again, the art is excellent throughout the issue. The double-page title page of Oliver and Shadow at the Pool is fantastic. The sun is rising over the mountains behind them, and an image of a dragon is reflected in the pool of water. As with the sequence at the fortress in the previous issue, the battle at the Yakuza headquarters is relentless. But again, a variety of angles and perspectives are used that keep the action moving quickly. The story manages to show just how resourceful both Green Arrow and Shadow are. They are consistently in charge during the action, with the Yakuza on the defense and scrambling in an attempt just to slow them down. Whether it's a snow-covered ancient fortress or a modern office building, these two can make their way through an army of the most highly trained Yakuza. It is only by sacrificing many of their own warriors that one man is able to escape with the child. Green Arrow number 24, September 1989, Blood of the Dragon Part 4, Hanare, which means the release of the arrow in Japanese archery. Writer Mike Grell, pencils Dan Jurgens, inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin, colors Julia Lacomet, letters John Costanza, assistant editor Katie Main, editor Mike Gold. 
Oliver is standing in a hotel room overlooking the Yakuza headquarters. Flames are coming from the building following his and Shadow's attack earlier, and fire trucks are just arriving to battle the blaze. In another dark room, the cigar-smoking American is talking to a group of businessmen. All are arms dealers. Demilitarization isn't good for business, and they're going to see that it doesn't happen when the U.S., Russian, and Japanese leaders meet. A political assassination is just what is needed, and the group is certain the assassin they've chosen will complete her job, but wonder if the pawn they've put into play will fill his role by killing the assassin. In the next scene, we see Oliver arrive outside the U.S. Embassy, where he stops to talk to a soldier guarding the entrance. Back inside the dark room, a man enters and informs the group that Oliver Queen has just arrived. The group is shocked, and so are we, as we learn this meeting is being held in the U.S. Embassy. The man who informed the group of his arrival escorts Oliver into an office. He introduces himself as Mr. Dawson, and Oliver tells him about the assassination plot. Dawson tells Oliver there is no reason to worry. The U.S., Russian, and Japanese leaders are attending a Yabusame, which is a traditional Japanese horse-mounted archery competition. They will all be heavily guarded, and nothing could happen to them. Dawson tells Oliver to go back to Seattle and take care of his flowers. Oliver leaves the room, but Dawson has tipped his hand, and Oliver knows he's involved. Dawson goes to get coffee, but when he returns and sits down at his desk, a green arrow flies through the air, expertly passing through the handle of his cup. The archery demonstration is a perfect opportunity for Shadow to assassinate one of the heads of state, but Oliver wants to know which one and the whole plan. Oliver sets a fire extinguisher beside Dawson and then douses him with lighter fluid. He strikes a match and waits for Dawson to talk. Shadow is hiding in the stables at the archery competition. She knocks out one of the participants and disguises herself in his clothes. She mounts a horse and rides onto the field. The stadium is crowded with spectators, but the four targets are all sitting together while smiling and applauding at the expert demonstrations. We see the cigar-smoking American sitting behind them, and we learn he is the U.S. President's senior security advisor. Shadow draws back her bow, but suddenly a green arrow streaks across the field, striking the cigar-smoking American in the chest. Shadow turns in the direction of the shot and sees the green arrow standing on the roof of a building and holding her son. She turns the horse and races toward a nearby cliff, but the security police are now at full alert and begin firing their weapons in her direction, assuming she killed the security advisor. Their shots strike the horse, and as it falls, Shadow leaps from the horse and plunges over the side of the cliff into the sea. At their headquarters, the Yakuza leader is being updated on the events. The U.S. senior security advisor is dead. Three other conspirators have suddenly died from accidental deaths. The Chinese are being officially blamed for the assassination attempt, but the U.S., Russian, and Japanese governments are all blaming each other behind the scenes. The leader of the Yakuza smiles. The world is no longer on the verge of peace. He finds it amusing that the American security advisor ever thought he was in charge. Instead, everything went just as the leader of the Yakuza planned. Back at her home, the sun is setting as Oliver bids farewell to Shadow. He gives her an arrowhead from his time alone on the island those many years ago, and he tells her to give it to her son when he has grown. He's a fine-looking boy, Oliver says as he walks away, and Shadow whispers in reply, and he has his father's eyes. And we see that his eyes are green, just like Oliver's. 
The cover features an image of Green Arrow with his bow in hand and Shadow in disguise riding on horseback. An image of the Japanese flag fills the background, and the dragon is again in the surprint. The double-page title page features a retrospective of the story so far, with images of Shadow holding her baby, along with scenes from their many battles along the way. I like the way Oliver is able to figure out what is going on at the embassy, and especially that he is able to rescue Shadow's baby in the end. The Yabusame competition featured a large variety of elaborate archery competitions and demonstrations. It made me think a little of the joust competition at a Renaissance fair. That sequence at the archery competition is exciting and tense, and the revelation at the end of the story that it was actually the leader of the Yakuza who was orchestrating everything in the background was a very nice twist. Of course, an even bigger surprise was the view of Shadow's son's green eyes in the final panel. But longtime readers will remember an earlier story that makes this all fit into place. The title of each of these four issues is taken from one of the stages of Kyoto Japanese archery. Kyoto means the way of the bow and blends archery with Zen meditation techniques. There are actually eight stages of Kyoto archery, and there is a great website that covers them at kyoto.com. We'll include a link in our show notes. Two hundred and twenty-nine different characters spanning the galaxies of the Legion of Superheroes, presented across seven comic book issues. A new miniseries as part of the Who's Who podcast. To handle this many characters, the irredeemable Shag is bringing in a ringer, or maybe we should call them flight ringers. Who's who in the Legion of Who's who in the Legion of Who's who in the Legion of Superheroes? The Legion of Superheroes. In the Legion of Superheroes. The Legion of Superbloggers team up to present Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes, a three-episode miniseries in 2017, part of the Who's Who podcast on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Long live the Legion. Next up is our coverage of Mike Grell's run on the Legion of Superheroes. Mike started his career at DC Comics with three Aquaman stories featured in Adventure Comics. Shortly after those Aquaman issues, Mike got the job as the regular artist on the Legion, where his excellent artwork quickly won over fans, and he remained the artist on the book from issues 202 through 224. Knowing there are many knowledgeable fans of the Legion of Superheroes, we invited guests onto the show to discuss those stories, and the response has been terrific. At this point, all but two of Mike Grell's issues have already been requested by his many fans. A big thank you to everyone who has contacted us to cover an issue. We're very excited to have these experts covering these fun stories. Joining us today are Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary blog and Philip Schweier of the website Comic Book Ben. It is great to have our friend and fellow fan Ange back on the show. And we give a big welcome to Philip, who we appropriately met at Mike Grell's table at DragonCon last year. In addition to that, it's easy to tell that Philip is a longtime fan. If you check out his page at Comic Book Ben, you'll see a picture of John Sable drawn by Mike Grell. If you are a Legion fan or just interested in learning more about the team, then we encourage you to visit the Legion of Superbloggers. Their extensive site features news, reviews, and discussions from a great group of dedicated fans. We highly recommend the group and we'll provide links to their site in our show notes. Hello, Darren and Ruth. It's Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comics Box Commentary and the Legion of Superbloggers. And I'd like to thank you once again for inviting me to come onto Warlord Worlds to review an issue of Mike Grell's Legion of Superheroes run. 
Today, I'm here to review Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 204, which is a personal favorite of mine. This issue begins a pattern within the title in which the book consists of two stories. One story seems to focus on the whole team, and then there is a backup story which seems to focus on either one Legionnaire or some supporting character. In this issue, that character is Brainiac 5, but in future issues, we're going to see stories that focus on Shrinking Violet, one for Night Girl, one for Laurel Kent, and even one that checks in on the Legion of Substitute Heroes. Mike Grell always seems to do the art on both of these stories, which I think is great because it gives the book a very consistent feel. I also wonder if having two different stories, really looking at the depth of characters that Legion offers, if that made things fresh for Mike Grell since he was early on in this run. But as I said, this issue, number 204, really holds a special place for me because Supergirl appears quite prominently in that backup story with Brainiac 5. The cover of this book is a nice Nick Carty image in which we see a mystery person in shadows who is the, quote, legionnaire no one remembered, close quote, as well as some dress for the backup story, which is called Brainiac's Secret Weakness. I'll briefly review both stories, but I'll probably spend more time on the second. The first story is called The Legionnaire No One Remembered, written by Carrie Bates with art by Mike Growl. The story opens with the Legion discovering a picture in their official record vault, which shows a Legionnaire named Anti-Lad sitting at the table with the three founders. Interestingly enough, though, none of those Legionnaires seem to remember him at all. We then flash forward to the 75th century, where a history student is looking into a time viewer to witness when Superboy was initiated into the Legion. Unfortunately, when he takes a look back, he sees that Superboy never was initiated into the Legion. We see a brief flashback that shows some of the more important elements of the team's first appearance in Adventure number 247. It seems that by viewing the past, somehow the device the student was using has changed history. The student's father then talks about how that change in history will eventually change their future, sort of like dominoes plowing forward through time. Vowing to fix things, the student adopts a phony identity called Anti-Lad and goes back in time to now try to apply for the Legion himself at the same time as Superboy does. In a series of challenges, Anti-Lad is able to repel the Legionnaire's attacks and so gets inducted into the team. We actually see the scene from the photo at the beginning of the story where he is sitting at the table. Later, Brainiac 5 discovers that Anti-Lad actually was using technology powered by kryptonite in his visor to block all of their attacks, and therefore cannot be inducted. In fact, he's branded a cheater. Given this excuse to explain why Superboy failed, the kryptonite in Anti-Lad's visor, the team then finds the Man of Steel, or Boy of Steel in this instance, and does induct him into the team, therefore fixing time. Anti-Lad then heads back to the future. The art here is pretty crisp. The initiation attacks on Anti-Lad are very well done and very kinetic with some classic Mike Grell poses. Uh, unfortunately, Anti-Lad's bald head has a midline crease in the scalp, which makes it look like someone's posterior throughout. I wonder why Mike Grell chose that as an artistic flourish. Perhaps you guys can ask him the next time you see him at a convention. 
But really, my love of this issue is the second story titled Brainiac 5 Secret Weakness by the same creative team. We open with a wonderful image of Supergirl flying away from the Legion headquarters with Brainiac 5 in her arms. She's wearing her classic um, hot pants and halter top costume from that time period, and she really looks lovely. Brainiac 5 says he's quitting the team as he and Supergirl fly off together, and Brainy tosses his flight ring to Starboy, a sign that he clearly means it. That's the opening splash, so the story actually opens up with us seeing Starboy, rather excited to have some R&R upcoming after months of being sort of on service for the team. Brainy arrives to say goodbye, but Brainiac 5 is also visibly exhausted. He hasn't been sleeping well, which is odd for him. Saturn Girl senses that Brainiac 5 probably has been working too hard and suggests that he head off with Starboy for a little bit of vacation. While flying away in a star cruiser towards a resort, Brainiac 5 recalls his relationship with Kara Zor-El Supergirl. He says she is the only girl that he loved and the only girl who has ever loved him. But since she hasn't been on a Legion mission in years, he hasn't been able to catch up with her. He and Starboy then land at Recreation Asteroid Number 7, a sort of Las Vegas in space. But when they land, who should be there but Supergirl? She says she is there to be with Brainiac 5. Her life is meaningless without him. They then share a very passionate kiss. Back in the hotel, Brainiac 5 tosses his flight ring to Starboy. Supergirl has convinced Brainiac 5 to quit the Legion, and he loves her too much to deny her. They fly away in the Legion cruiser to lead a romantic life of leisure. Unfortunately, while in space, Brainiac 5 discovers that the cruiser is going to be bombarded by Zotron radiation, a radiation which is going to be lethal to him. To save him, Supergirl wraps him up in her indestructible cape. The rays then course through the ship. But hang on, this is where things get pretty weird. When Brainy is unwrapped, he sees Kara Zor-El standing before her without her cape, as she has sort of unwrapped him. Brainy is quite thankful that she was there. But this Supergirl says that she wasn't. She had just sort of arrived. She points to a metal robot on the floor, which is smoking and sputtering. This thing was the Supergirl from the resort who had lured Brainiac 5 away. The robot's costume and flesh were vaporized by that Zotron radiation. The real Kara, who Starboy had contacted, flew in just in time to wrap Brainiac 5 up in her real cape and save him. The dying android then says that Brainiac 5 was driven by loneliness, that he yearned so much for the real Supergirl, that his subconscious mind had him build his own Supergirl, He has been exhausted because he has been sleepwalking through the night, building this, I don't know, I guess you'd call it a fembot. The robot seems to have some sort of rudimentary sentience and declares its love for Brainiac 5 just as her last power cell fades away. Brainy cradles her in a pose that's quite reminiscent of Michelangelo's Pieta. With the Zotron radiation overheating the cruiser's engine, the real Supergirl and Brainy fly off, leaving the ship and the robot to explode. The last three panels show Supergirl talking quietly with Brainy. She says she is considering stopping being Supergirl altogether. She therefore needs some time away from the Legion. But she hopes that if she returns to the future someday, they can pick up where they left off. The two again share a kiss. The end. First off, I think Mike Grell really shines in the action sequences throughout both stories. I totally love the way Anti-Lad deflects off the Legion's attacks in that first story in his initiation. Second, Grell really draws an incredibly lovely Supergirl, 
It was this issue that made me know that I needed to get a Grell commission with Kara in this particular costume the next time I saw him at a convention, and luckily I was able to do so a couple of years back in Rhode Island. Lastly, Supergirl saying that she was unsure about being a hero anymore is a little bit weird. There is a very brief time where she considers retiring, but when this issue came out, her run in Adventure Comics had ended about a year before, but she was still appearing in Superman Family having new stories with new adventures, so it's interesting that Carrie Bates decided to write that in. Lastly, I have to say it's relatively creepy that Brainiac 5 made a sort of love robot for himself. I mean... It's just a little bit odd. Of course, longtime Legion readers know that Brainiac 5's grasp on sanity has always been tenuous, so I suppose making some sort of pleasure model for himself isn't truly out of the question. And now on to the art. This time I decided to pick four favorite panels from the issue and one favorite page. So my favorite panels are as follows. Number four, in story number one, page seven, panel two, there is a panel where Anti-Lad changes his body's composition to be able to absorb Lightning Lad's powers, and it's a very classic Mike Grell sort of panel with action positioning of the, of the character. It's quite nice. Panel number three is in story number two, page seven, panel one. This is Supergirl just after rescuing Brainiac 5. She's standing over him as he's sort of crouching to the floor. She's holding her cape in front of her because she just unwrapped him. Her hands are sort of nearly on her hips in an iconic heroic pose. She really just looks great in that panel. It's very classic Bronze Age appearing Supergirl. Number two, in story number two, page three, panel one. This is the panel where Brainiac 5 is reminiscing about his relationship with Kara. We get two face shots of a very contemplative Brainiac 5 on the periphery of this wide panel with a very nice shot of him and Kara kissing in the middle. So it's a very nice panel to sort of convey what he's feeling as he remembers this romance. And then finally, my favorite panel in this issue is story number two, page one, panel one. This is the one with Supergirl holding Brainiac 5 as she is flying off with him. It's just gorgeous. She looks graceful and powerful as she sweeps him off her feet. The perspective with Brainy throwing the ring downwards to her starboy is really wonderful. And it really encapsulates what I love about Mike Grell. There's a lot of emotion and feeling relayed in this image that didn't need any words. As for my favorite page overall, I would have to say it's story number two, page eight. That's the last page of this story, the one that has the Brainiac 5 holding robot panel that looks like the Pieta. It's the one with closing panels that have a very nice close-up of Supergirl's face and that ending kiss. That all works. Once again, I'd like to thank you both for letting me come on the show and talk about these issues, which I truly love. As I said, this issue is pretty special to me, and so it got a little bit of extra discussion. Thanks again. Hello, and welcome to Warlord World's review of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 205. My name is Philip Schweier, and I'd like to thank Darren and Ruth for inviting me to be part of their podcast. I've been reading comic books since the early 70s, when I wanted to grow up to be like Superman. Instead, I settled for Clark Kent and a career as a mild-mannered newspaper man. In 2004, I combined my newspaper career with my passion for comic books when I became a writer for ComicBookBin.com. Since then, I've also been a steady contributor to Back Issue Magazine, where I've had the privilege of interviewing Mike Grell for his work on The Warlord and The Legion of Superheroes. Back in 1973, The Legion was a backup feature in Superboy, and I'm guessing DC Comics wanted to test the waters to see if it was popular enough for its own title. 
DC published four issues reprinting stories from when the Legion headlined Adventure Comics in the 1960s. Number three featured the Computo story from Adventure number 340 and was my very first comic book, my introduction to the Legion. A few months later, I discovered Dave Cockrum's updated Legion when it had taken over the Superboy title. Superboy and the Legion number 205 is a pivotal comic book in my childhood. It was given to me by my sister, who was a student at Indiana University, where Michael Uslan was teaching a class on comic books as modern myths. A friend of hers took the course and had bought the comic book for it. My sister asked if she could have it when he was finished to send to me. It arrived in the mail October 10th, 1974, my 10th birthday. I was thrilled. Not only was it a Legion comic, but it was also a 100-page Super Spectacular, which was like getting three comics in one. It featured a solo Superboy story reprinted from Superboy number 88, a two-part Legion story drawn by Kurt Swan from Adventure Comics number 350 and 351, Lore of the Legion Part 2, which offered details on some of the members of the Legion, and a text page about the Legion's new artist, Iron Mike Grell. The text page educated me regarding comic book artists. Until then, all the Superman comics I read were penciled by Kurt Swan, and many of the Marvel comics seemed to be variations on Jack Kirby or John Romita. This led me to believe that comic books were drawn in an established house style by anonymous artists, much like the Archie or Harvey comic books. But reading about Mike Grell taught me otherwise, and I soon began to take notice of the individual styles of other artists, such as Irv Novick and Jim Aparo, but Mike Grell was far and away my favorite. Mike's primary contribution to Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, number 205, was the lead story, The Legion of Super Executioners. The cover illustration is by Nick Carty, who drew many of the DC comic book covers of the 1970s. It features Superboy flying in to rescue Ultra Boy and Lana Lang, who are under the guns of a firing squad led by Monel. The story opens with Lana Lang's birthday party. Despite the attendance of her parents and friends such as Pete Ross and the Kents, including Clark, she's disappointed Superboy was unable to make it. Later that night, he arrives, explaining that her birthday gift is a visit to the 30th century, where she is an honorary member of the Legion of Superheroes. Upon their arrival, they're greeted by a solemn bunch of Legionnaires, who explain that normal Legion activities have been disrupted. They show Superboy and Lana a path of destruction perpetrated by a sole individual, who they manage to contain in a holding cell. Superboy is shocked to discover the culprit is his old friend, Ultraboy. He convinces the others to let him into the cell, in the hope of talking reason to Ultraboy. Instead, the Legionnaire goes berserk and manages to peel off Superboy's cape and bind him with it. Superboy blacks out. When he comes to, the others explain they managed to pull him out of the holding cell, but have not yet figured out how to untie the knot in his cape. Superboy explains it's a hoax knot, native to Ultraboy's home world of Rimbor. It's a complex knot, but is deceptively easy to untie if you know how. Brainiac 5 enters, revealing the water of a distant world will cure Ultraboy's madness. Speed is of the essence. Monel, as Legion leader, should remain at headquarters while Superboy races off into space. But no sooner is he gone than Lana is taken prisoner by the Legionnaires. It is revealed that Ultraboy's madness has been induced by Brainiac 5 to prevent Ultraboy from exposing what's really going on. While Superboy is off on a wild goose chase, it appears the Legion has no choice but to execute Ultraboy and Lana Lang. The two are marched into the courtyard and placed before a firing squad of their teammates. Ultraboy, 
who can only use one of his superpowers at a time, is fitted with a pair of lenses that activates his ultravision, thereby negating his own vulnerability. Ready, aim, fire. The executioners return to their task, leaving the bodies of Ultra Boy and Lana Lang in the courtyard. Slowly, the two revive, wondering how they managed to survive. There stands Superboy, who saved them. He explains it was the hoax knot that Ultra Boy used, suggesting that he may be the victim of an elaborate fraud. He returned to Legion headquarters on the sly, where he discovered the execution about to take place. Moving at super speed so the others would not see him, he shielded Ultra Boy and Lana from the main brunt of the blast. Lana changes into her superhero identity of Insect Queen, which has earned her honorary membership in the Legion. As explained in the lore of the Legion later in the issue, she once came to the rescue of an insect-like alien who gave her a special ring in gratitude. It enables her to change into various types of insects, but because her power is artificial, coming from the ring, She's ineligible for Fall Legion membership. Superboy, Ultra Boy, and Insect Queen investigate what the rest of the Legion is up to, deep in the sub-basement of the Legion HQ. There they find them constructing a giant arc. Suddenly, Insect Queen whirls and flies down the corridor into a storage room. Superboy sends Ultra Boy after her, while he remains behind to keep an eye on the other Legionnaires. Ultra Boy discovers a small alien wearing a high-tech helmet that gives him control over the minds of the Legionnaires. But Insect Queen is now under his control, and she attacks Ultra Boy. As the fight continues, she changes from one insect to another, until eventually stinging him to death. Superboy arrives, and as he kneels over Ultra Boy's body, the alien explains he has a near-endless lifespan. He plans to relocate the Legion to a distant planet, where they will spawn new generations of Legionnaires until the alien has a superpowered army at his command. Suddenly, Ultra Boy plucks the helmet from the alien's head and destroys it, freeing the other Legionnaires from his control. Sure, Insect Queen was commanded to sting Ultra Boy, but the sting was only enough to stun him. Without the helmet, the alien is powerless and easily defeated. The story has a simplicity that is common to comic books in the 1970s. It's as innocent as a Saturday morning cartoon, and there are plot points that today's readers might needlessly fret over. But back then, young comic book fans didn't concern themselves with such details. At least I didn't. This was Mike's fourth Legion story, and it's possible to see how his artwork evolved in just a few issues, both in terms of rendering and storytelling technique. I like his early work a great deal. It seems very fresh. And I really enjoy how his skills as an illustrator matured in the years to come. Superboy and the Legion, number 205, is by no means the first comic book I ever got, but it's certainly the cornerstone of more than 45 years of comic book reading. I followed the Legion for more than a decade afterwards, and Mike Grell has always been one of my favorite comic book artists. I followed him from Legion to Warlord to John Sable and anywhere else I could find him. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned to Warlord Worlds for more Mike Grell, the Legion, and look for me, Philip Schweier, at comicbookbin.com and in the pages of Back Issue Magazine. Next up is listener feedback when we share the emails and other messages we've received since last time. We appreciate each and every comment. I know they add so much to the show. Thanks to everyone who wrote in or got in touch through social media. First, we want to thank Philip and Ange for their great coverage of the Legion of Superheroes. Thank you both very much. I've enjoyed reading the Rebirth reviews that Ange and Philip write. They both have an impressive amount of comic book knowledge, and it shows in their reviews. 
You can find Philip's thoughts on Green Arrow at comicbookbin.com. He has a great writing style, and I enjoy his take on this series. And I've learned that he is actually the longest-serving writer at the bin. They call him their resident expert on older comics and nostalgia. Ange, of course, reviews the Rebirth Supergirl series at the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary. I appreciate seeing his take on the comic as well as the Supergirl TV show. It's a great source of news for anything related to Supergirl. In advance of the release of this episode of Warlord Worlds, we received a request from our friends at the Fire & Water Podcast Network and the Legion of Superbloggers. In the most recent episode of their excellent podcast, Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes, they discussed the character of Anti-Lad and asked us to write Mike Grell about the design of the character. Of particular interest to them is the crease down the center of his bald head that makes some readers think he has a head that looks like a person's butt. They wondered if Mike intended that design as a message or reference to something in particular, or whether he was just trying to get in a funny joke without the editors noticing, or whether it was just an unintended result. Mike was happy to reply, so we'll read his response, though it won't be nearly as funny as if it was in his own voice. Mike said, Hmm, the legionnaire nobody remembered, including me. I had to Google him in order to refresh my memory, and I confess my reaction was, what was I thinking? I suppose it was intended to represent a massive brain with a skull that would have developed to show the two hemispheres. I can see why folks might have thought it was a butt, and given the influence of the Comics Code Authority, it would have been a coup that my old mentor Joe Orlando would have loved. Joe always delighted in slipping something past the code, but in truth, it was purely accidental. So, dear friends, there is your answer. Now, on to other fun topics. Mike Grell also shared a preview of an amazing Wonder Woman cover he did for the 100 Covers Hero Initiative Benefit book. He used oils and watercolors for it. I'm sure it will be popular in the auction and look great in the book once it is published. We've posted it on Facebook and Twitter, so be sure to look for it. Philip Anderson recently entered a Mike Grell sketch in the Comic Art Fan Sketchbook Competition. He had Mike draw it for him at the last Comic-Con in Sacramento. The competition sounds fun. A variety of sketches are entered, and fans vote to determine the winners. So we were happy to see when Philip's sketch by Mike Grell won. It is a gorgeous drawing of Green Arrow, Black Canary, and Green Lantern. We'll be sure to add a link in our show notes. Ryan Daly of Midnight the Podcasting Hour, The Power of Fishnets, and many other fun podcasts at the Fire & Water Podcast Network commented, Great episode. Jeff and Ange were nice additions to fansplain the Legion issues. Alan Wright of the excellent website BoldOutlaw.com devoted to Robin Hood told us, Your coverage of Superboy number 202 rang a bell, and I realized I had that story in a digest reprint. Chris from the podcast Bat Books for Beginners, and who does reviews of Batman 66 on the Batgirl to Oracle podcast, sent us a great letter. He wrote, Thank you for sharing your appreciation of Mike Grell. I'm a fan of his myself, and have most of the mainstream comic books where he did artwork. All of the Superboys, Warlords, Green Arrows, and John Sables, plus the 1977 and 78 DC calendars. What a great talent. I thought he did some great artwork in Batman Family, and I also liked his short four-issue run on Batman numbers 287 to 290. Chris continues, I first encountered Mike Grell's work in Superboy number 204 when I was seven years old, but a subsequent issue, a 100-page book, an original story with some reprints, really blew me away. I was taken with the facial expressions on the Legionnaires in the story, and his wonderful depiction of Lana Lang as Insect Queen. Grell makes the Legionnaires' costumes look more realistic to me. They look like they had more dimension and shape, clothes that actually fit the person. I loved how he depicted action with such fluidity. Superboy 205 also had a Mike Grell biography, the first comics pro bio I had ever read. Great stuff. 
I also love the Treasury edition with the wedding of Saturn Girl and Lightning Lad. Thanks for those comments, Chris. We really enjoyed your letter. Nicholas Prom of Comic Reflections wrote, I am loving the Legion of Superheroes coverage on Warlord Worlds. I'm a fan of Grail and appreciate his work on Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow greatly, but the Legion hold a special place in my heart, and Iron Mike's time on the book is particularly memorable. Long live the Legion. We got some great shout-outs from listeners. Joe Crawford of the blog for the non-discerning readers said, New episode is up. Excited to hear the newest Warlord Worlds. Karen Williams of Between the Pages saw the notice about our latest episode and said, There will be a lot of happy Legion of Superheroes fans today. Justice as First Dawn wrote, Legion Forever with Warlord Worlds. Dig it. Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl wrote, My favorite team. This will be great. We also came across an exchange on Twitter between Martin and Bronze Age Babies. They were lamenting the discontinuation of the Legion archive books before the Mike Grail run is even completed. It seems the next release of the Legion of Superheroes will have the next issues in sequence, but will be titled differently and not numbered. Martin had a clever suggestion to make a disguised spine to match the prior set. Mike and Chris of Comics in the Golden Age said, Very excited for this. Already an amazing podcast, but I was always hoping the Legion would show up. And later, we were also happy to learn that Mike had a great week on eBay, where he found a complete set of John Sable comics, plus 19 issues of Johnny Quest. Fantastic. Mike Skelly told us, I only need a few more issues to complete my Warlord collection. We wish you good luck finding those issues, Mike. It always feels so good to complete a set. Comic book artist and writer Michel Fife wrote, I failed to mention that I've gotten into Grell's earlier work. Batman, Legion, Green Lantern, and hey, what I definitely like is that intro theme music. Thanks, Michelle. Philip Schweier wrote to us about episode number three, which he re-listened to recently, and he had some good information for us. You raised the question regarding the bet Morgan lost to Mariah in Warlord number 10. In the close-up of Morgan at the end, he's wearing an earring for the first time, but we never see it again, though Machiste kept his head shaved. Thank you, Philip. Very observant. Laurel Phillips wrote, Enjoyed listening to you on Batgirl to Oracle's latest episode. Dug out my Green Arrow issues to follow along. Thank you, Laurel. And we want to take this opportunity to thank Stella for having us as guests on her Batgirl to Oracle podcast. It's a fun show, and we had a great time talking about Connor Hawk's time as Green Arrow in a story that was set in Japan and featured Shadow. And we joined Stella to discuss the latest issues of the current Batgirl and Batgirl Birds of Prey series. We had a fantastic time on the show, and Stella was a great host. We'll be sure to include a link in our show notes. Alan Wright of Bold Outlaw commented about our Straight Out of Gallifrey Doctor Who podcast appearance. He shared that the Armageddon Factor Episode 5 was the first Doctor Who episode he ever saw. We appreciated hearing about that, Alan, and we really enjoyed doing the show with Ashford. In closing, we want to thank our friend Doug Zawija, who writes for sites like Superior Spider Talk and Comicosity and Back Issue Magazine, and he runs the excellent Doom Patrol blog MyGreatestAdventure80.com. He obviously knows us very well because he surprised us with a terrific gift. It's a poster from the 2016 movie The Legend of Tarzan. We love the movie and we love the poster. Thank you, Doug. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media since the last episode. These are people who liked or shared our Facebook or Tumblr pages or retweeted our tweets. If we miss a name, just let us know and we'll include it next time. And please do forgive us if we mispronounce your name. If that happens, let us know and we'll be happy to correct that next time as well. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog, Ashford of Feathers and Foes, and Straight Out of Gallifrey. 
BC Fan 101, Brian Mulvey, Bronze Age Babies, Christopher Willett of Beware of Monsters podcast, Christopher Palmer, Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast, Colin Stapleton from the Worst Comics Podcast Ever, Doug Zuija of Comicosity and MyGreatestAdventure80.com, Dr. G, Man of Dordology from the Pulp to Pixel podcast, Ed and Terry Moore of Till Productions, Grant Richter of the Unearthly Visions blog, Henry Santa, the Irredeemable Shag of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, also known as Firestorm Fan. James Johnson, James Warrington, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast, Jimmy Simpson, Joe Crawford of the blog for the Non-Discerning Reader, John Baker, John Ferrante, Justice's First Dawn with Mike Peacock, Karen Williams of Between the Pages, Laurel Phillips, Let's Talk Masters of the Universe, Luis Carlos, Mark Sweeney from I'm the Gun blog and podcast and comics couplets. Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, Matches Balone, Mike Skelly, Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast, Philip Schweier of the Comic Book Bin, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Ryan Daly of the Power of Fishnets and Midnight the Podcasting Hour, Ted Rugger, Tony Greenall, and Wendy Friedman of the podcast Double Page Spread. Before we go, we want to provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. If you want to contact us directly, then please send an email to warlordworlds at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr using the name Warlord Worlds. And you can always visit warlordworlds.com for links to our social media pages. And you can listen to the show through iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find the show on YouTube as part of the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. I'm sure you get it. Ruth and Darren, R-A-D, Rad. We've had fun with that. On the Rad Adventures YouTube channel, you will find all of the episodes of all of our podcasts, including Warlord Worlds, as well as Trekker Talk, about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Xenozoic Xenophiles, about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Every review helps the podcast be more likely to show up in search results. And on YouTube, we hope you'll subscribe to the channel and give us some likes on the videos. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended.